Today on Care Under Fire, I'm with former Special Forces medic, Timor and Afghanistan veteran, and now paramedic Jody Tayish. Welcome to the podcast, Jody. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for having me. Uh, really loving your uh, your podcast series, and you've had some amazing speakers on there. So, thank you. I'm keen we can finally, as I said, get this one recorded because I know you've done a bunch of interesting stuff. Tell me about your younger years growing up, how you went at school. Excellent. Yeah, so I was born in England, um, moved out when I was roughly six years old to uh, a small little mining town called Kew in the middle of WA. So red dirt country, um, gold mining predominantly. And uh, yeah, my father got a job through um, my uncle who was living there at the time. Um, so yeah, we, we lived in Kew for about two years. Um, and then it was um, next adventure for mum and dad. They uh, decided to go partners in uh, a guest house in a small town in Yarloop, which uh, has since burnt down due to fires. Um, that's a small country town just south of Perth. So yeah, we, we lived in just south of Perth. It was roughly four, four or five years worth of uh, fun times in the country as you do as a kid. Um, so really, really good friends and still keep in contact with a lot of those uh, from that back in that era. Um, and from there, we moved around a fair bit. So dad was working offshore as a chef um, so I sort of had that availability, you know, every two years, three years to sort of shift, uh, shift spots from there, moved to, um, Northern and then up to Geraldton, just up north of Perth. And then predominantly after that, so my high school years, um, we were based in Perth, went to school there and, uh, along with my sister, an older stepbrother. Uh, yeah, my sister and brother joined the military as well. So I come from yeah. a military background as well. Um, so also my stepfather, who was in the Navy as a chef many years ago. Mm. Um, uh, so HMO Sterling and a few others. Yeah, my brother joined the RAF as a, as, an, as a chef as well. And also my sister. So I'm kind of the black sheep in the family, so to speak. Yeah, went down the medical pathway instead. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So yeah, um, my sister was thoroughly enjoying her time in the military. Um, she deployed with Antat to East Timor and she was 19 at the time. So absolutely loved it. Really good feedback on her uh, adventures over there. And so my ears sort of pricked up a little bit. Um, through high school, I decided to do my TE or what was called TE back in the day, purely just in the fact like I thought it was the best thing to do if I had options to go to uni. Mm -hmm. um, but in saying that, being a young 16 year old, 15 year old, I was more preoccupied with um, surfing <laughs> and uh, obviously into my punk music and you know, parties as you do at that age. So um, yeah, it really didn't have a good sense of direction as to what I was really interested in, um, yeah. what I was good at. So it was quite difficult. I felt a little bit lost in that regard. So anyway, I sat my exams, didn't do the best as, as well as I could because obviously head wasn't in it and uh yeah probably just that lack of direction i believe so um yeah sort of worked throughout that summer after graduating and speaking to a couple of uh people i was working on the ferries from perth to rottnest and there's a couple of ex-navy um, veterans there who um, sort of got in my ear and say yeah why don't you um why don't you apply have a look see what's out there and i had definitely had an interest and gave some serious thought joining the military obviously talking to my sister and and my brother so yeah, initially I believe I um, I was going for ADFA and looking at certain options there. And I think from memory it was something related to SIGs and whatnot. So anyway, did the aptitude testing and all that, all good. 
until I got to my medical and the uh, one of the the officers came out and said, oh, unfortunately, Jody, you're, uh, you're what's called colour perspective uh, three, so you've got a certain type of colour blindness. And uh, I was so demoralised and just, well, what is, what is colour blindness like? What do you mean? Uh, so I had no no indication of that at the time. Mm. It turns out it was red-green deficient and, uh, yeah, went for further training in that one. Um, and obviously speaking to mum, she, she sort of excited after my, my medical, how'd you go, how'd you go? And uh, told her that and she said, oh, of course you are, yeah. So it's run through her side of the family. Um, and I think a lot of medics, specifically male, that join up is that is due to that, yeah, certain colour blindness and sort of negates them going into certain cores um, or occupations within the military, so. Yeah, I've heard it. Heard that a lot, actually, especially that red-green. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, for me, it was a bit of a like, oh, okay, what next? Um, sort of left me a little bit lost. But in saying that, yeah, got in touch with recruitment and they gave me a list of jobs that I could do, uh, one being a chef. And <laughs> so I gave that a wide berth, um, purely on the fact that, yeah, I burned toast at the best time. So I, uh, <laughs> I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm going to give that a wide berth on that one. So, yeah, the only thing that really stood out to me was medics. So I looked into that, did a bit more research and did a couple of more sessions at recruitment. And anyway, I signed up uh, to become a medic. So initially, I think it was four-year sign-up. The day that you sign on with all your family next door, it was changed to six years on paper. And I distinctively remember as a whole gaggle of us youngins, so it was about 16, 16 of us, I think, at the time. And we were all like, oh, what do we do, you know? Look, well, let's just do it. Sign up for six years. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, very interesting. But, uh, yeah, from then, it was just still fast-paced, you know. You whisk off to Kapika and go through your IIT training down in albury Wodonga. So, yeah, it was the best best outcome in terms of, yeah, receiving that news as CP3. And everything's sort of uh, worked in my favour. So, I'm really, really, really happy on that one. Yeah, it's a decent rosso. Yeah. For what was it then a um, diploma that they gave you? Because you know doctors can serve for less time and get half their degree paid for. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, I think at that stage it was uh, considered a, a critical occupation or a critical course. So yeah, right. they're very low in numbers. So and I think when you consider all the time used for training and studies and whatnot, it's uh, yeah they want to get their money's worth, obviously. But it was great. I think it was into that slow transition where you're having half the instruction through military instructors and obviously through, through TAFE as well. So, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, uh, you come out with your diploma at that stage. Yeah. For, uh, which was great. Um, yeah, loved the training. The training aspect was uh, was pretty intense. Um, going back into, you know, I remember the day that I rocked up to Uruwodonga and I was helping a few other students are about to start on the medics course and we're setting up the rooms and you know there's a bit of a pile of like 25 books i'm going oh no what have i done <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty daunting so yeah 11 11 months straight of um instruction there uh but it was great like uh, as you know you do the clinical placements and yeah you're touching on a little bit of primary health care and yeah obviously the outpatients and and doing the time in in hospitals around uh, at the time you've gone through hospitals in Melbourne and uh, really feeling your feet, getting your bread and butter as a, as a medic. So yeah, yeah, really enjoyed that. All that basic patient care stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then off to your first unit or first couple of postings. How was that? And did you get to do anything fun? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, my sister was based up in Three Sisbury, up in Townsville, um, and she said, yeah, you've got to come up. It's or obviously one, it's great weather most of the year. And uh, yeah, I wanted to be close to my sister. So that was my first priority um, and got that along with a couple of really good mates from um, the School of Health. So that worked really well. And I really enjoyed my time at Sisby. Um, I know it copped a bit of a flogging reputation wise over the years, but as a medic, it really gives you those foundations, um, that skill set, both by, you know, you're doing the MASH setup. So you're setting up those mini hospital research setups and low dependency units. So it gave you that really good um, training in terms of field deployment and shakeouts, um, along with um, doing some good placements. You're doing ride-alongs in, in the QAS ambulance service as well up in Townsville. Um, and I had really good uh, detachments out to the wider army, so it was great. You could see what other capabilities the army had to offer, being such a, a green medic. Um, so, yeah, one, uh, 162 recce squadron. And out a few field trips to them, and then you, you smaller ones where you go out one hour out to our smaller detachments like that. So that was really good. You weren't just locked up in a cage up in towns like three Sisby. It's um, it gave you a wider, a greater appreciation for what else the uh, the military has to offer. So so initially, when we first arrived or marched into three Sisby, um, we had the Ready Company group that deployed to Solomon's at the time. So it really was a bit of a ghost town, um, especially at the unit. So that was a little bit slow pace for about three, four months. But after that, yeah, it's uh, definitely the tempo reached pretty busy times. So we we're constantly gearing up to go to Timor and being a part of the, uh, the resus team with the ready company group. Um, really enjoyed that time too. I had a really good mentor, really good doctor, Ben Butson at the time. Yep. Uh, it was quite intense, uh, well known throughout our call, um, and a really good mentor. So, um, yeah, he basically uh, trained me up to resus um, advanced medic, and uh, still to this day, it's one of the best experiences ever. Um, so deploying over to uh, East Timor, two thousand and six, and we set up at the end of the uh, the runway there in Dili in the resus. The first three days was quite busy, various uh, trauma there, um, and it turned out to what was going to be roughly two week deployment it turned into six months. So yeah. Uh, we had the the rest of three Sisby and a few other companies come over. That gave me a really good appreciation for one the your role as a resus medic, and also working alongside. We had a surgical capability from uh, Brisbane also, mm-hmm. and certain detachments and patrols that we were doing in that six months was great. I loved my time. Um, halfway through that deployment, I uh, chose to apply for a four hour. I had a couple of mates, Jason Marks at the time who was at our unit as a medic and he uh, obviously did selection and become very qualified and was uh, loving his time down there. Also Jeremy Holder as well, who was at three since he was posted to four hour and, uh, and the feedback he gave me, I was like, yeah, this is something I really want to do and test myself, test my skills. And uh, so, yeah, I put all my focus into my craft as a, as a, as a medic and obviously my fitness levels as well. A little bit daunting at the time, like you had some really good hype about um, that unit and the things that they're doing. So, mm. yeah, and it's just coming into that really busy tempo with that unit. So I marched in the start of 2007. Uh, we had the welcome from our WOMED and he said, well, congratulations, pack your bag again, but you're off to uh, <laughs> Paris school down in Narrow. 
Mm-hmm. So I did the paratrooper course with a couple of mates and uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And I think it was the, from memory, it was the march out um, after that course three weeks later. Um, yeah, I was chatting to a couple of members of the, uh, the unit for four hour uh, who said just quietly that our company had been earmarked to go to, to Afghan. So since then, yeah, when we returned back to Sydney, it was a steep learning curve. And yeah, I was fully integrated into our company and got the ball rolling there so a completely different world to what i was used to you know being fully integrated into a uh, well one commando role but obviously into a platoon as a killer so completely different weapon systems you know the heavy weapons the insertion skills the the tactics and obviously a whole whole facet of uh different ways of life so yeah extremely enjoyed that so how was i mean most people that have been in the military have a bit of an understanding, but the day-to-day in special forces compared to a regular army medical unit, how does the role change? Yeah, definitely. So obviously most days you do a bit of PT in the morning um, and then from then it's like you get your, do your O-group, get your orders in the morning. But um, yeah, once we had that confirmation that we were earmarked to, to head over to Afghan, it was basically just day in, day out, you're doing your, your lead up tactical training. Um, so yeah, I was part of the PHQ, so platoon headquarters. And so we essentially formed the fifth team in a platoon. Yeah. So obviously going through your, your shooting skills and, uh, all the heavy weapons and spend a lot of time down the ranges, just, uh, zeroing all your weaponry and, um, and all the finer things like that. So I just remember all those, those long hours, those long days down the ranges and then get calls up for palletize, uh, palletizing all your uh, all your gear, sort of like your mock-up rapid deployment sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very, very steep learning curve, very high tempo compared to what I was used to up in Townsville. Um, and obviously, uh, yeah, we're just rehearsing, doing like miniature sort of nursery patrols. I guess for me, uh, I had a bit of a heads up from Jeremy Holder who's since returned from his trip, my rotation three. Um so a bit of a change from Timor, yeah. uh, but it's great. I distinctly remember going over his house and him just laying out everything for me. So like, this is the med pack I used. Uh, these are the boots I used. You know, this is what you'd expect on a day to day. This is what I carried. This is what worked, but this is what didn't. So that was really good for me. That's very beneficial in terms of it mentally prepared me. And also like I knew what I, what I had to focus on prior to deploying um, in terms of getting my skills up. So thank you. Thank you, Jezza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Invaluable though, from someone exactly. who's been there and done the job just recently. To be exactly. Able to get, yeah. More than what you'd ever get from a training organization or a book <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. Absolutely. So two summer deployments to Afghan in the fighting season. Run me through your role there as, well, initially Alpha Company's medic. Yeah. So we, uh, we, Got into TK. Um, I guess the base that we had were SAT sheet compounds there were quite, quite, quite basic. So we just had some B huts recently uh, constructed. The first couple of weeks we're setting up like the clinic there. Um, so for both FE Alpha and FE Bravo, mm-hmm. so both um, troopers and commandos. But yeah, it was a very, very busy time. Obviously, just squaring away what we had was um, SRVs. So basically, the defense vehicles, and then with all the uh, all the water, all the food, ammunitions, bombs, uh, you name it. So 
squaring away our vehicle. So we were doing uh, vehicle mounted operations or patrols outside the wire. I was obviously in PHQ. So as a kilo, you're up in the cupola. So you're on the uh, turret with the, uh, the heavy weapons, yeah. <laughs> which is completely new to me. So obviously, yeah, up at the range and just zeroing all your weaponry, uh, doing your nursery patrols. Uh, yeah, and we also like helped out the kilos, helped out down with the forward surgical team, the Americans, which were very busy for the little mud huts that they had at the time. Is just extraordinary the the level of traumatic injuries that used to come through, and also like the outpatient um, clinics they used to run once or twice a week. So you get new primary healthcare sort of fix there, and also helping out with um, mass casualties and anything that walks through that door, essentially. So building rapport with the Americans and obviously the other coalition forces, the Dutch at the time that were across the compound. So if you went outside the wire, you were basically helping out or um, responding to little events like that. It was hard to sort of detach from your platoon when, you know, when you're inside the wire, you're, you're re-gearing or refitting the vehicles and tweaking little things that worked and what didn't, and then being drawn into the medical aspect as well. So yeah, it's very busy times, but as a, as a kilo, it's, it's you know, was the best thing ever. So. And obviously TK grew into a, basically a small town before the withdrawal in 2013. It was massive. So, but back at this stage, it's pretty small. You're seeing the same faces every day and you've basically got that patrol medic role and then you're going down and working with a team in a, only a Ford Surgical asset. There wasn't a Role 3 there or anything at that point. Not at that stage, no. Yeah. On the first deployment, yeah, 2007, it was quite basic, quite a quite a raw base, so to speak. And I'll say when, when the, we had a bit of a push with the Aussies coming over and Dutch and the Roll 3 establishment, um, mm-hmm. yeah, this, just, the base just grew phenomenally. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, 2007, 2008 were busy, busy, busy uh, deployments and it was like having a hairdryer to the face. It was that hot. Um, we were doing... Uh, most of our kinetic operations so our get a target package and we were operating by night so um, in the day you're literally fighting with other dudes in the car just to get a bit of (laughs) shade underneath the vehicles or you're on top facing out doing your little (laughs) overwatch with your battle brolly above you just trying to escape the heat was phenomenal yeah Yeah. was that the motivation for growing a mop of hair because I would have thought that'd be like a bit of a thermal blanket on your head. Pretty much. Yeah. I'm pretty hairy naturally, but yeah, I was like, I, and I guess just conserving water as well, um, not having to shave. And, and for me, you know, coming from a, a CISB was a big novelty. So yeah, it grew the hair and the beard and yeah. didn't have to think about those things. It also provides you with a bit of protection, a bit of a you know, camo, so to speak, when you go through those dodgy towns. So, but yeah, I distinctively remember laying on the swag at night time. When we caught back from a bit of a, a hit and uh, just looking at these jets, I was like, why didn't I become a, a fighter pilot? You know, like, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Not that I could have, but... Colourblind. Yeah. <laughs> Colourblind, yeah, damn it. Yeah. So, but uh, as I said, like, we, we did some huge treks, huge patrols on foot. Yep. And really successful uh, missions um, through Alpha Company. Um, some things that we achieved with our just blows your mind, but... Uh, yeah, uh, 2007, I still think, and I, I talked to a couple of old mates from, from that era who was in the Alpha Company, and they still rate that as, you know, Rotation 4 was their favourite trip. Um, yeah, right. Being such a busy period, uh, you know, those guys are bashing out, you know, six-plus rotations over there. I just don't know how they did it. Uh, 
yeah, it was, it was mainly 2007 were vehicle operations until we sort of staring down the path of, you know, vehicle IDs and a lot of our guys starting to get crumped, so to speak. Mm. So we, we sort of looked at that and thinking, yeah, the tactics have changed here. Um, we can keep doing what we're doing, but we're, we're going to have to change. So that's when they sort of brought in the helo insertion and air assets and and frames for that those type of missions, those very high kinetic uh, in and out missions. So that was amazing. Um, doing those missions where you go in, achieve everything you could, and all your boys are intact, everyone's on their helos, whether it be, you know, uh, flying back to vehicle drop-off point or back to base. Uh, just remember, you know, that, that was why I joined up as a medic to, to the SF unit. So I was looking out the back of the... Uh, the helicopter and you had the gunner on the back and you're flying through these mountains. I was just like, this does it get any better. It was amazing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very proud as a, as a kilo over there. I was really happy in teaching the other commandos who were interested. And yeah, let's, let's face it, these guys are highly motivated uh, individuals, very intelligent. And yeah, their backgrounds, you know, there's a lot of guys in my platoon. One guy was industrial chemist, one was you know, a lawyer, there's pilots, you know, there's just a whole realm of career backgrounds and intelligence. So I love that, the fact that they're interested in the, in the medical aspect. And, you know, obviously as we've gone into some hairy situations, they knew that, yeah, that was one of their focuses and what they what they needed in the field, so to speak, out outside the wire. So, um, Did you feel you had to prove your medical skills to them and your worth as a kilo? Absolutely. When I marched into the unit, um, one, I hadn't been integrated fully with uh, a commando, let alone infantry uh, unit. Um, and I think for those guys, especially the direct entry guys, they hadn't experienced a kilo being detached in the platoon uh, from a day-to-day basis. So it's one one aspect. It was me feeling I had to prove my worth and could I keep up and could I perform on the day. But also for them, it was like it was a bit foreign to those uh, to those shooters as well. So it was a bit of a slow, slow process, you know, like uh, building rapport and building relationships in the platoon. Um, but I felt like the lead up training and once we're in country, you know, we, we did a few hits and I felt like I, I was keeping up and mindful of the fact that uh, I didn't want to be a burden. You know, the support staff tend to be looked at as, oh, I do have to take the kilo. Hmm. But I believe, I truly believe in, in the commander unit. It was, uh, you yeah, know, we were uh, definitely respected and knew, you know, obviously with rotation three that the medics definitely needed. So I'll put that upon myself, you know, to build those rewards and, you know, gel with the guys and obviously keep up when when needed. So you're carrying a med kit on your back. And you know, I just remember certain missions where you compromise, you've got a little, uh, what sounded like a lawnmower in the sky, you know, overhead surveillance and uh, <laughs> you compromise. So it's next minute. Yeah, so we're running into a green belt and we're getting shot at. So keep up <laughs> jumping over little mud walls and everything like that. So I don't want to be that guy. And I loved it though. I love that sort of environment where yeah, you, you bust your ass on a patrol, but um, yeah, you felt like you, you performed. So. so tell me about your first tick, your first big contact and how that unfolded. First big contact. Yeah. 2007. Uh, I remember we're up in the, uh, up in the North a little bit. And it'd been a bit of a slow, slow burn. Uh, there wasn't much action going on. And Intel was a little bit off from what we were told. So I know a few few targets that we were hitting, it was dry holes, 
nothing, no one on them, I'm saying. So frustrations are starting to grow. Morale was suffering a bit. But I remember the gastro was getting around the my platoon a little bit. So one of my SIGs, I just finished uh, bagging or candulating, run some fluids through. Mm. And at that time as well, we had a bit of O group in PHQ and a few of the uh, few of the shooters coming up. Anyway, we just wrapped up O group and next minute we hear a bit of a searing sound just from the uh, the nearby feature, which is about two, three hundred metres away. We all look up like deers, deers in the headlight. And uh, there's a plume of smoke coming off. And next minute, yeah, the ground just started exploding and we had rounds whizzing overhead and uh, uh, miraculously we weren't hit, no one was hit, but uh, it was very close from my memory. At the same time, we had one of the section leaders from the mortar uh, detachment um, who ran down into the incoming fire. You know, his members around the vehicle were pinned and couldn't move. But yeah, he ran into the, uh, the incoming and stoked about seven mortar rounds by himself. And that set the pace from that from that tick, you know. Turns out we had Taliban off to the left who was setting up a mortar base plate. And when that initial contact was a Dushka set up on the mountain nearby. So uh yeah that set the pace from there and on it was yeah high temp for the rest of that rotation so obviously the morale grew and did some lengthy lengthy patrols and yeah we worked pretty hard that that rotation especially in the fighting season we i just remember your uniforms were disintegrating off your back and yeah it was just yeah, you really put your body through the um through the test yeah you also did um some jobs with the da didn't you like in in the aim to reduce the open trade that funded the Taliban, you'd go in and get rid of those labs. Yeah, so that was probably a little bit later, just after my second rotation. Focus sort of went into the DA, I guess, relationship there. And but uh, I remember a few, few concept compounds we were coming across. Uh, it was either patch out, um, patch out grounds so to speak so they'd have a lot of patch out gear and medical devices and, and gear to to fix the Taliban uh, we also come across a couple of labs as well so um, we'd blow in situ or you know report on uh, but yeah definitely after my rotations that's where the focus went for those guys who were doing those fast-paced kinetic operations with um, helo insertion uh, which proved to be really really um, successful yeah a massive surprise when they arrive rather than seeing them come up the valley for three days, I guess, in the exactly. long-range patrol vehicles yeah. that were really quite <laughs> exposed once IEDs or the art of the Taliban laying the IED and they really honed that and unfortunately got really effective at using them. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, like when you look at it, I was looking at photos the other day, actually, and seeing these uh, SRVs that were basically bombed up to Mad Max vehicles. You're cruising around the countryside in some pretty um, pretty intense terrain. Yeah. Uh, and the sheer weight and exposure of your personnel on those vehicles. I'm really surprised we didn't take more casualties, but introduce the Bushmaster and uh, there you go. Mm. It's, um, it's worth its weight. So, What were the clinical jobs that stayed with you? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a few random ones with the primary healthcare. Um, and I'll get to obviously the traumatic ones, but uh, <laughs> when you're doing your patrols, you come across any walks of life, you know, and I distinctly remember, you know, well, yeah, where's the kilo? Yeah, come up. We've got a, uh, got a local, he's got a pretty gnarly infection. And <laughs> I just remember it was always coming up and then you'd see your, see your boys just looking at you with a big smirk on the face and you're going, oh no, what, what have I got? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
yeah, it could be a, a Taliban uh, guy who's got an infection up his arm and still, tra- you know, expected to treat, obviously. So I remember one one chap who had a pretty gnarly arm infection, was cellulitic, and he's probably pretty septic as well. But, uh, yeah, they go to the witch doctors uh, and, you know, like apparently a, a dollop of camel Camel shit is is a band aid for those guys. So that's yeah. what they were doing, putting on open wounds, and oh, yeah. surprisingly, you've got a pretty gnarly infection there. So um, that was really good in the sense, like we could refer onto the Ford surgical team for their their clinical days that they had, and so building that that rapport and trust with the local nationals was really good. So you're doing your little uh, medical caps uh, capabilities in small towns. Yeah. Um, but probably the biggest one as a kilo was so Chad Elliott, who um, got clipped by a 762 round. Uh, they were doing dismounted patrols up in um, up in the north. And just remember coming over the comms, one of the, the operators saying that we needed the Bushmaster and we had a prior one casualty. And I knew this day was coming and mentally I was preparing for it. And you know, as you do, you grab your kit, jump into the Bushmaster and, and sting it towards uh, the, uh, the contact. But... Um, uh, it was the longest, longest <laughs> ride uh, to the point of um, point of injury. Um, just remember, yeah, I could hear the us putting our bombs up onto the hilltop, and obviously small arms fire coming down. And uh, yeah, we rocked up, and then yeah, things were exploding everywhere. And I just remember the uh, driver; he was a bit shaky in his voice, and he's like, oh, "We're here, you can go." I was <laughs> had a little had a little chuckle to myself myself because I knew, yeah, we were right in the thick of it. I just remember opening up that back door and yeah, it felt like a movie scene. Yeah, you know, we just put an A4 around up on the hilltop and there was a lot of activity. I was like, wow, here we go. But just luckily in my in my team I had some really good switched on operators. They did a sensational job, um, the initial treatment of Chad. Um so obviously he copped a seven six two round to the inner thigh and I think it shattered his neck of femur. And then he had a really good decent baseball size exit wound out of his um his uh, buttock. So they did a great job patching him up. Um, obviously, he had the, the rotated uh, leg, and yeah. Yeah, he was a bigger set, bigger set guy. So hats off to them in the heat of the moment, where we've got incoming fire, um, trying to fight through that, get him off the mountain, and drag him into a, a safe area. I believe they had to drag him behind a little rock as well as protection. So he came out, assisted those guys doing a further drag just around the back of the, the bushmaster. Obviously, do your uh, your initial exposures and. Uh, I think uh, what, what calmed everyone's nerves, you know, given the situation, um, it was a bit of dark humour, a bit of gallows humour, so to speak. Won't go into it, but about Chad's anatomy yes. downstairs. So Pretty close to some yeah. important things for most dudes. <laughs> yes, that, that's right. So we had to confirm it's all intact and, and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, that was really good in the sense like that was probably in the first big uh big casualty that um one miraculously he survived um and i got to put yeah. my skills to the test in terms of fluids and you know i think we had a shot off uh, radio antenna off one of the vehicles that we used as a splint and yeah improvisation in in those tricky tricky circumstances so it was great working with the team with you guys and you know those little events they sort of they highlight the need for further training in, in your platoon and, and the need for kilos there as well. So obviously, yeah, did the initial stabilisation, pain belief, and got him back to um, back to the rest of the squad who uh, able to jazz up the nine line and get helo assets out uh, once it was safe mm. to do so. so. Um, 
yeah, great job, yeah, for on, on the field that day. And there's a few, obviously, other traumatic events after that, uh, traumatic injuries and whatnot, um, more so from, um, from other Afghanis. But, uh, yeah, we had, it definitely uh, just blows my mind how lucky our platoon were given some of the uh, some of the ticks that we're involved with. Yeah, good luck, but also good trading, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly, you, yeah. Yeah, definitely. you're not going in underprepared and... And particularly on the medical side, you the trauma care system was really well established from point of injury all the way back. So in, in some respects, a traumatic injury in Afghanistan, you'd get better care than you would if you were out the back of Burke on a farm or something. Absolutely, absolutely. Just in terms of having someone with your skill set right there, you can lose a lot of blood into a pelvis really quickly and... Yeah, mm-hmm. just getting access and fluids going. I'm assuming you didn't have blood at that point on those sort of patrols. But no. In the helicopter, they would Yeah, they would have, yeah. And uh, it was good knowing, like, we had the PJs, had a good rapport with the PJs and knew their capabilities and skill set. Um, so that was, that was definitely uh, reassuring for us uh, as a fighting element. And obviously, yeah, as you say, from point of injury back to the forward surgical team. And then on to potentially Germany as well, if they needed it. So, yeah. uh, but that but it was more of a focus. It was kind of a, a new concept, obviously, with the TCCC and the TECC, so the extended mm-hmm. field care stuff. There's a lot of new things coming into fruition, as you know, obviously the tourniquets and you know the standing operation uh, operating procedure for every man to carry a tourniquet, an auto injector with morphine, field dressings, and things alike, and the training that came with that as well. At the time, I think we had like the Hemcon dressings and um, uh, a lot of the Israeli bandages and impregnated gauze and things like that. So that was that was all quite foreign to me initially, Uh, but obviously being in those theatres, that was uh, that was your day to day, and obviously, yeah, saved lives. So yeah, absolutely. That sort of leads on nicely, but what do you think our biggest medical lessons learnt were from the early part of the Afghan war? Yeah, like still like the military medicine has taught so many services and so many uh, disciplines, I guess, in Civvy Street. The tourniquet application, so quick, effective hemorrhage control, along with, uh, yeah, I guess, like the, the lethal diamond, so to speak. Um, so so hemorrhage control and you're getting you know the blood blood products to point of injury um i think that's a huge focus now especially in big theaters is having availability of uh, packed whole blood and uh and stopping the bleeding so that's massive you know and that's that's even hospital settings as well they still need to nail those basics those one percenters and strangely you know strange strangely some organizations still still teach the yeah, the tourniquets and things as a last resort so i went into a um ed just last week of a regional hospital it can remain unnamed and <laughs> i um i was just like oh what have you got for like your trauma stuff and they basically just had some combines in their resource bay and a couple of like crepe bandages i'm like so have you got a tourniquet no nah. no have you got any hemostatic dressings no nah. So what happens if you get an arterial bleed arrive, you know, like someone's gone through some glass or whatever, (laughs) you know, and in a regional area, you get farming, firearm accidents and things. Exactly. They're like, oh, well, New South Wales ambulance sort of cover that now. I'm like, yeah, but they might not be here. That's right. And 
Yeah, it just like it, it's frustrating that we learnt so much, but it, it's been really slow and it's a drip filter and not everywhere is uniformed yet. Exactly. So you might get it in one place and you might not in the other. And to be honest, like I would have been better going out to the my car that day and grabbing something. <laughs> exactly. Know, yeah. Which is te- which is terrible. <laughs> it know? is. Yeah. It's yeah. slowly going to get there. I think the. Um... The, the small courses that, that companies are putting through their workers now, you know, just like basic hemorrhage control and tourniquet application and things, yeah. so worth the weight in gold, you know. And I always tell everyone that I work with, you know, like have a kit in your vehicle or, or you go fishing, take one in your fishing uh, boat. Um, you know, you never know when you're going to come across. It could be an MBA down the road where you'll have to, you know, strap on a tourniquet or direct pressure, you know. Um, it's going to save lives. Um, I think we need to get out of that mentality. We are. We're getting better at it. But don't think as tourniquet is going to be detrimental to the patient and use it as last resort. So yeah. yeah. Have a kit ready and, you know, be proficient in that application and the use of it and the contents of your first aid kits. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much, so much uh, literature, there's so much science and studies and you know, YouTube videos you can watch to increase your skills and your knowledge on, on that. So sink your teeth into it. Mm. And just have the confidence to go there if you need to. That's right. Yeah. 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 Tell me about Sean McCarthy. He's LIPV, got hit by an IED while you guys were over there as well. That's correct, yeah. So poor Sean. Um, uh, that morning, I remember it was roughly it was very early in the morning and one of my operators came into the room. Um, I, just, I just woke up. Uh, he goes, oh, one of the um, FE Alpha guys that just had both of his limbs uh, fractured. And I thought, oh, this is how good. It's probably a f- uh, femur fracture. So I jumped up thinking, yeah, probably have to go down to the FST and sort of help out. I found the other um, uh, the other platoon kilo and gave him the heads up saying, hey, we might need to go down and, and receive one of the operators. Uh, since in that time, I got more intel, came over the comms and um, yeah, it was um, bilateral amputations and frag wounds. Um, Effie Alpha Kilo, who is very skilled, I, yeah, I knew he'd do a great job on the ground. But the yeah, the initial report we got that they uh, hit a vehicle um, ID, cramped the back end in, and he's got um, yeah some pretty uh, traumatic injuries. So uh, obviously, within half an hour, we heard that he's um, yeah, he passed away, and he was making his way back to um, to uh, TK. So obviously I, I hit up, I remember finding the Padre at the time that was detached with us and gave him the heads up that um, he had passed. Yeah. And obviously our medical officer as well. Very sad day. And I remember receiving him off the vehicle from off the um, the airfield and uh, helping out the American who was there to obviously inspect. And I had to go in and identify him and um, obviously inspect wounds and things like that. And that was very surreal, very sad moment uh, for everyone uh, in SOTG and the other deployed Aussies. Yeah, so it hits home. It's um, really, really out, out, outlines the uh, the type of work that you're doing over there. Um, it's not just the IEDs, it's, you know, it's the small arms fire, it's anything can go pear-shaped really quickly. Yeah, um, and that you're not... Um, or, you know, the mortality is a possibility. You're not immortal, even if you feel like that in some of those firefights when you 
you see death, I guess it really brings that home in that tragedy. Absolutely. And, and in my mind, looking up to these, these commandos and these troopers, you know, you, you look at them as like, you know, demigods, but you know, some of those contacts were in and hats off to these, these shooters that come up and, you know, they just offload, you know, and you can tell it, it rattles them a bit. And it, in my eyes, yeah, I remember the conversations where they said, oh, I don't think this is the job for me, which is massive for these guys that put their body and minds through such physical um, stresses and to get their beret and things, you know, for them to turn around and say that, that they need to look at a career change. It's like, yeah, it's like you, it really just humanizes them in my eyes. And yeah, it just reiterates the fact that it's, it's not for everyone. This, this, yeah, the war is not for everyone. So, um, how is that? continuing on like even losing chad out of the platoon he was alive but he obviously had to return to australia and have like multiple surgeries and stuff on his way to recovery and then of course you lost um signal sean mccarthy How, how's that then like day to day you've you just got to keep on keeping on you've got another job to do mm, nah for me i it's like i yeah maybe Maybe I packed it away, but uh, for me, it was knowing that I had to maintain the tempo, you know, maintain the the, the sport uh, as a kilo for the rest of the um, platoon. And to be honest, like I knew mentally what I was prefer- um, going into uh, in theatre. Mm. Uh, so I, I guess that mental preparation has definitely helped. But I think it's it's also the background and, and how you've grown up as well what you've been exposed to um so in terms of the trauma and things like that can you are you affected by it or can you process it in a way that's going to be beneficial um and i I guess increase that resilience to those traumatic events so yeah definitely very sad and to be honest in that first rotation uh things like those big events uh you didn't have time to really sit down and think about it until you you got back to australia and thought well did some pretty crazy stuff and achieved so much and but yeah well that was that was intense um and just as i said like you're just scrambling your head as to how we didn't receive more casualties given some of the uh situations we put in yeah absolutely did you ever um, contemplate doing selection i know lots of medics want to push themselves and prove themselves both medically and in, as a shooter did yeah. it ever sort of come across as a goal for you definitely yeah like after that first rotation i really gave it some thought um uh, given given that i was, had a certain type of color blindness i had to look into that a little bit more mm. i mean there was ways around it i know other kilos have given it a crack with it um definitely i really want to put myself through the test and thought that you know i could i could give it a really good nudge um and coming back from that first rotation, I think it was roughly what four or five months till we were back over there overseas again. So it was very, very busy tempo. And I guess in hindsight now, uh, after I um, discharged from the military, I, I really wish that I'd um, probably put all my focus into it. It would have been a bit of a headspace and could solely focus on training up for it. So yeah, if I had my time again, definitely I would have given it a crack. How did you feel coming home? And what sort of changed in you post Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, coming home, I remember doing a handover with another kilo who was about to he was about to deploy over there, and gave him the heads up, as did um, Jezza to me, the aim of the run through and everything. But it's just so surreal coming from that huge, fast-paced kinetic operationist to 
you know, having a brew with your mate back in Sydney and Cronulla and you know, talking about surfing and just mundane day-to-day stuff. It was really, really weird. Mm. Um, so it did take me a while to sort of adjust to those type of things and keep yourself busy where you're, yeah, you're in amongst highly motivated individuals and um, professionals to people complaining about the smallest things. I really struggled with those top things. So, but for me, keeping me uh, occupied, you know, I moved from, from Sydney to, to Perth and started doing work in the mines and whatnot. Yeah, I had to find other, other avenues to, you know, do what made me happy, you know, find myself again. Um, so. What made you decide to get out? Uh, it's a bit of a combination of things, actually. I, I, I was staring at uh, potentially going down promotion for sergeant and in my mind thinking that, um, you know, off the tools as a kilo, I was yeah. like, no, nah, I wasn't ready for that. No, I just lived and breathed being a kilo. I love that profession. I was sort of going into like a semi-admin role, which wasn't all for me. Um, also, like after my second trip, I thought I could stay in and keep bashing out these deployments, but... I don't want to use up all my nine lives and sort of had that in the back of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I was also in a, a relationship at the time as well, which was suffering just due to the busyness of the unit and not being around. So yeah, it's a hard decision, very hard. Um, and I remember moving back to Perth and within a month or two, calling up a couple of the kilos and say, Hey, thinking about joining back in and they sort of persuaded me not to and told me yeah, it was changing, the military was changing and just ride it out for a little bit. So good advice, um, keeping myself busy and occupied and, and little hobbies just to, to keep you going. So, yeah. yeah, back on the surfboard, back to work sort of thing. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And it was, you know, it was a bit isolating working offshore. I was working on the gas rigs month on month off at the time. And, you know, you come home and obviously everyone else is working throughout the week. So I was like, what do I do? I was like really bored and yeah, kind of got into a bit of a rut. Uh, I looked towards photography and things like that where I could sit out in the water and, and shoot waves and surfers and things like that, which is really, really good um, hobby for me. Yeah. Good distraction. And obviously with that, the traveling and, and finding new waves and yeah, traveling overseas. So that was great. I think um, just finding my, myself and yeah, sort of learning what I was about. I hadn't had that opportunity uh, before, yeah, since joining the military. So, yeah, what was I into? What were my hobbies outside of military? Uh, but also still keeping in contact with a few of the guys as well. So helping out with, like, companies such as TACMED and still keeping your foot in the door, that yeah. sort of um, aspect. So In the brotherhood, mm. if you want to call yeah. it that. Yeah, you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good opportunity to catch up with old mates and, you know, shoot the shit and then see who's where. He's doing what? Tell your worries and um, pretty yeah, much, yeah. yeah. But also, yeah. you raise a really good point. It's important to have an outlet, and if that outlet is outside, it's probably a good thing for most people as well. You know, it's a bit creative, it's a bit athletic, but you've got a a mental, physical outlet where you can relax. And if that's a, on a surfboard for you, mm-hmm. um, yeah, everyone's different. Exactly. Um, I think. I think. A lot of mates who have got into a bit of a rut or, you know, if they, you know, suffering a little bit PTSD-wise, you know, it's, it's there's so many organisations out there to talk. You can bring up your mates that you serve with, you know, uh, have, a good, have a good outlet in that regard. But I think it's important to keep your mind um, fresh, uh, keep motivated, keep doing those things that you know, give, you, um, give you happiness, you know. 
um, whether that's going to the gym or if it's traveling or it's, you know, you're playing with your kids or whatever, it's, um, you need to find that happiness, what makes you um, get motivated and maintain that motivation. So, yeah, yeah, good advice. Seeing as you're not serving, I'll ask you the controversial question. Mm. Um, the Bereton Report, Afghan Inquiry, we rarely get a chance to say anything about this as mm. those that are still serving and sort of, I don't know, defend, if you if you want to use that word, or, or make comments. So I'll open the floor, but what do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really delicate... Um... Oh, like it's it's a very delicate situation and and in my mind i think it's quite dividing it's dividing uh, the military it's undoing a lot of that really really good work that the military has done overseas and in country as well um, yeah. in australia domestically so unfortunately um i i feel we need to focus back on war fighting and you know, improving the technology and skill sets of our military as opposed to focusing on these other things these distractions and things that are really debilitating one the reputation of the defense force uh, but also the the soldiers airmen seamen um i think it's really had a huge impact on on the mental health of of um our servicemen and servicemen yeah. let's let's get back to let's face it like a every week there's a new conflict overseas or there's something that's really intense. I think we need to focus on the things that make us good as a, as a fighting force, fighting element, and uh, steer away from these distractions. Uh, given the, obviously certain, certain situations and context of things that have happened in the past, we need, to, we need to look into those, but let's move forward and not hinder our ability to um, uh, to provide care and, and support in, in big conflicts. So. Yeah. I think we're losing the focus of being a defence force sometimes, losing our edge as a fighting force, and at the end of the day, that is the job of the military. You know? That's right. And it's just like uh, the, the media has a huge, huge thing to ask for that. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for people that I'm, I work with, you know, they, they guess, oh, so what do you think about this? And what about think about this situation that old mates uh, he's under fire for and you know that that is the focus it's not like hey tell me about these deployments and tell me about the yeah. good things that you've done it's all negative and i think we as veterans or people still serving need to not get caught up in the media and all the all the hype of that and you know be proud be proud of the things that you are doing and what you've achieved and what you are going to achieve and and uh they think it's all negative and yeah, dark, gloomy cloud. So yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So since leaving the army, you've mentioned you did your oil and gas offshore work, but you've also worked uh, with a couple of different ambulance services. What's the best and worst bit of that? Well, I think uh, the offshore game was amazing experience. Um, so I was actually I slipped into that role through uh, Brad Watts, who was on a, an oil rig at the time, um, yeah. <laughs> and so bouncing around a couple of um, casual positions on the mines when I first discharged from the military. Um, he said, "Yep, yeah, slipping on, moving into a different rig." Um, went out, and I had a small little uh, <laughs> Chinese rig that was basically falling a bit. But the crew is what made it. We called it the Black Pearl because uh, it was essentially like a pirate ship. Um, but the crew were amazing. Still got some really good mates from that crew and five years with that company, really good company, uh, worked for, um, and that sort of, yeah, set the, uh, 
except for instance for other rigs that I worked on bigger and new generation rigs. Um, so the day that you fly in on the chopper, it's the worst job in the world, but you're there for a month and then the day you fly off, it's the best job in the world because so, <laughs> you've got a month off straight. Yeah, the food's really good, the environment's good and, and these rigs are well equipped these days. You've got gyms, you can do running on the heli decks, you've got really good food, as I said. Um, so great experiences and you're doing a bit of travel with that as well. So Singapore and Timor so you places like that were you there as a paramedic yes yeah as a a paramedic yeah so it was good in the sense like you are doing some really good training with um, basic first aid trained people and teaching them all the you know the tourniquets and completely foreign things in their eyes Um, so that's really good because again you are essentially super remote and and for you to get um, a high level of care so whether it be the retrieval helicopters with an icp and a doctor come out you some positions depending where you are it can be up to six seven hours that helo to hit the platform so you need to be onto your craft and and really you know that extended field care is is your bag so um had some pretty pretty big situations some really sick and injured people out there but yeah it's good just having a bit of background knowledge and and skill set to sort of do all those situations and what about the ambulance work Ambulance work, yes. I worked, uh, did, started my internship with SA Ambulance uh, about two, two and a half years ago. Um, so I got through what, eight, nine months of my internship and uh, we had our second little boy, uh, Bodhi. So sleep deprivation was uh, was huge. So my wife wasn't yep. getting a good night's sleep and, and we had another boy who was what, two at the time. Um, so coming off night shift where you're getting smacked all night on the road, doing like mm. 12 jobs a night as an intern as well, um, you're pretty, pretty wrecked. And then obviously your wife not sleeping and handing you a little bub and it's like, oh, great. We could say, yeah, we got to a point, we started, we looked at each other and said, well, what are we doing? It's pretty stressful and, and uh, we don't need this at this point in time. So let's press pause on, on ambulance. And um, SA Ambulance were really, really supportive and understanding. So they uh, encouraged me to jump back in when we thought it was um, a good period. and. That's what I've done. So I've actually just gone through all the process again to potentially go back on the road um, starting January and bash out this internship and then, uh, yeah, and go from there. So, yeah, a couple of reservations in that one. I think Vic's thinking, well, you know, where you're currently working, you get a week off at a time. Um, That's good for us. But I think, yeah, I just need to be home a bit more for the boys and the family, um, especially coming into sporting era of the boys. So... That's yeah, pretty great, and life events I want to be home for a bit more. We spent a lot of time away from home over the years, so yeah, mm. yeah. At the end of the day, you um, die with your family, not your job. So exactly, it's um, yeah, good to put a bit of time into them when you can. That's right. I think I also just um, using my brain a bit more on road, um, so you know, just increasing my knowledge base and, and skill set. Currently working out at a mine site remote in um, SA but um, yeah you, you're not putting your skills to test so to speak last one you're from a family of military chefs what do you bring to Christmas lunch <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah uh, anything I'm not cooking probably uh, pre-cooked king prawns is a must so in our family chilled king prawns in a big ice bucket is definitely the go-to on a yep. warm summer's day um and non-food wise you're bringing uh, the ugliest christmas sweater you can find and definitely halfway through the uh, festivities you got to bust out a bit of mariah carey or michael buble to get wow. the uh... <laughs> yeah i know right 
that's a long way from the punk rock <laughs> yeah, exactly. teenage years. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Jody, thanks so much for your time coming on to the podcast. Some pretty epic stories there that sort of just tell the variety of military medicine. And thank you for your service. Thank you, and also to you. And keep going with your podcast, really loving it. And I think we need to encourage other other veterans to you know to share these stories so we don't lose this incredible history of the defense force so but yeah thank you and all the best <laughs>